This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. I'm recording this introduction at Meiji Jingu Shrine, which, among many other accolades it possesses, is currently ranked as the top place to visit in Tokyo by the travel giant TripAdvisor. I'm here because on any normal day a year ago, Meiji Jingu would be crowded with overseas tourists, and it's really not hard to see why. The main shrine building, which is just in front of me, is a gorgeous construction of cypress and copper, with what feels like pristine forest all around, isolating it from the concrete sprawl of Tokyo. But looking around it on this particular Wednesday morning in November, there's barely a single non-Japanese face to be seen. In fact, there's barely a single face to be seen. No one's here except for a monk walking across the courtyard with an oversized pink umbrella. Coronavirus came and international tourism is now in suspended animation. But was all that tourism really so good anyway? Many don't think so, at least in its current undermanaged form. My guest today is someone I've hoped to have on this podcast since its very beginning. His name is Alex Kerr. Alex is probably best known for his books Lost Japan and Dogs and Demons. And through his work in Shikoku's Ia Valley and Kyoto's Tea House districts, he has become one of the country's pioneers of new models of heritage-based and sustainable tourism. On this episode, we'll be discussing what a sustainable future for Japan's tourism could look like and whether COVID-19 offers a space to reflect and reimagine the industry or whether we'll regress to old habits and unsustainable practices as soon as it's all over. Alex Kerr, thank you for joining me from your home in Bangkok. Good to be here. Allow me to add just a little bit of context before we get into the discussion proper. So over the past 10 years, I think one of the most obviously visible parts of the government's growth strategy has been to raise the number of international tourists coming to Japan. I think it's been phenomenally successful in doing so, and the number has increased from 8.6 million a year in 2010 to just shy of 32 million in 2019. But that increase has definitely also come with its fair share of problems, and to take it to Kyoto, a city that I know is close to your heart, Alex, I think that many visitors are shocked at how busy it had become pre-pandemic. And many locals are finding it increasingly difficult to live in the city as well. Now we're in this unique moment where Japan's international tourism is almost non-existent. So I wanted to take this brief opportunity to talk to you as someone who's worked and written and lived in this space to have a discussion about where you think Japan could go in terms of reimagining its tourism industry and the role that tourism should play in Japan going forward. So big question to start with, if you were given a mandate to reinvigorate Japan's tourism industry post-pandemic, where would you begin your approach? Uh-huh. Uh, actually, before I answer that directly, let's talk about what this campaign has been. Uh, it, they call it Kanko Rikoku, Raising Up the Nation with Tourism. And it was extremely successful. And uh, surely, if COVID had not come along uh, this year, we would have reached 40 million. Some of it is due to the policies of the government, but most of it, ironically, I don't think was. I think it was due to the the fact that the whole world is having a tourist explosion. Mm. If you're in Japan, you tend to look at Japan's special attractions, and you look at that explosion of tourism, and you think, wow, 
you know, they all wanted to come to Japan. Well, they also all wanted to go to Venice and they all <laughs> wanted to go to Mount Everest and they all wanted to go to the Galapagos and Machu Picchu and so on. So the whole world is experiencing an explosion of tourism or had been until this moment. Mm. Uh, so that's part of the background, uh, I think. Another thing I wanted to point out is that, of course, my village down in Ia and the other house restoration projects I've done in other places in Japan, we, we survive because of tourism. So I'm a huge believer in Kanko Rikoku and have gone around for years giving speeches on that subject and uh, thank God for it because it's saved. In Kyoto, it saved literally a thousand machia were developed because of tourism, which would have been torn down. And of course, our IA project, the rest depend on it. That said, my English readership are mostly not aware that I also write books in Japanese. And one of them that came out uh, just last year is called Kanko Bokoku. Bokoku means destroy the nation. Destroying the nation with tourism was the subject of that book. And uh, my argument is that tourism is important for Japan. It's uh, a necessary industry and we want more of it. But like every industry, it needs to be managed and controlled. So it's a question of balance between the positive and negative sides of tourism. And you feel like tourism hasn't been controlled properly. No, no, it hadn't been controlled at all. There was no control over who went to a temple and who went to a museum and how many people could try to, how many mobs could crawl up Mount Fuji, dropping rolls of toilet paper as they went. There was no control over this stuff. There's a technology of tourism that has to do with access. Do you, do you destroy the, the lovely mood of a rural temple by building a gigantic bus lot right next to it? Or do you, as they did at Stonehenge in England, put the, 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 the visitor center two kilometers away and people can walk through the fields. And when they get there, they see sheep, you know, and they think, oh, you know, tens of thousands of years, the mystery of it all. <laughs> That's a technology, right? Well, Japan is stuck in old fashioned industrial era technologies, which are, are inappropriate for the tourist age. And so there was chaos and there was a degradation of cities like Kyoto and the rest. But on the whole, you are in favor of tourism. Yeah, I have to point out because I'm so critical about tourism, people think somehow I hate it and I wish they would all go away and Kyoto would be quiet again. That's not what I'm trying to say. So we need them, we want them, but it's got to be controlled and managed properly. So coming back to my original question, where do you begin in trying to restore that balance and trying to manage tourism in a more sustainable way? Well, there's short term and long term that we're looking at here. The short term, which is COVID, which is going to go on for at least two years, even with the vaccines, people are not going to be traveling internationally as they were uh, for a while now. So for at least the next two years, we're going to have to rely on domestic tourism. And Japan has actually seen, partly because of the GoTo uh, program, a, a, a rebound uh, in domestic tourism. And that's been in some ways very healthy. It's not like all the tourists disappeared. Even at the very height of the inbound tourist boom, you know, 80 to 90% of Japanese tourism was still locals. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can still rely on that and you can still aim for it and also manage for it. So that's, that's the short term. And for example, in IA, we're, uh, of course, it was completely shut down for months. But now we've come back and we've reopened and people are coming. And they're coming because a rural place like that 
actually suits the new era because of social distancing. I mean, do you want to be walking on crowded streets in Kyoto? Or do you want to be on a mountainside where the nearest house is, you know, <laughs> a long way away? You can shout to them maybe over the valley. Uh, and so, so you feel safer. There's a comfort level. And I know, and I'm getting, hearing reports that uh, hiking courses, uh, mountain cottages and things like this all around Japan are seeing uh, quite an uprise in domestic tourists. Let's pause on Ia for a moment. I think people who've read your books, Lost Japan and Dogs and Demons, will know about the Ia Valley down in Shikoku and the old house you first bought there in the 1970s called Chiori and your efforts to restore it to something that is now livable. But how's that project going? What, what position is Ia and that house in now? Much, much better. Uh, the house and eight other houses in the valley were restored using government grants and we manage them today. And uh, that was unthinkable at the time I wrote both of those books. It couldn't have happened. So there has been one of the good sides of tourism. People always talk about the economics at issues, but there's actually a cultural plus of tourism has been in Japan because when the government and the local uh, officials woke up one morning and realized, oh my God, these old houses that we consider just garbage are money makers. Foreigners and also the Japanese will come and they'll spend money in our village. You know, they'll help to build up our town. Then there was a big turning point. And so mm-hmm. government money and regional uh, programs been set up. And so all around Japan, there's been a kind of a boom in, in restoring cultural, cultural heritage. And that's been one of the great pluses of the tourism boom. You said you now have nine houses restored in the Ia Valley. So what's been the core philosophy behind those restorations? Key to this, and this really was what I did with the Machi and Kyoto that people had not done before, which is people had this idea that an old house is going to be forever uncomfortable and has to be completely, if you do restore it, you've got to completely, you can't change the shape of a single window or anything, or you tear it all down and do something in plastic. And I said, no, look at this expertise that's developed in Europe for for 100 years now of taking old structures and bringing them into the modern world. I don't take the house and say, okay, this is what it was in the Edo period and let's study it. I say, no, let's live in it. And the reason Japanese have literally been afraid of these places is because they knew the discomfort. And people, they would love to appreciate traditional culture, but they don't want to suffer. So what we do is we modernize them while valuing everything that was beautiful and of quality in the materials, the the design of the rooms, you know, all the the things that are essential. We retain, obviously, more than retain, we polish them and make them even more beautiful. But in the meantime, we put in, you know, central heating, not central necessarily, but heating underfloor. If it's cold, it's cold area, underfloor heating, uh, you know, baths, toilets, beautiful lighting, open up windows, skylights, bring light in. And we do all sorts of things that, to make it pleasant. And that was key. And when they found that you could go to an, in an old Japanese house and you could stay there, and be comfortable, better than comfortable, it could actually be chic and beautiful and also comfortable, all those things, Uh, then people sort of reacted with joy, really. 
And the pictures of the properties look absolutely beautiful. But beyond the fact that people are enjoying staying at these restored houses, what have been the impacts on the rest of the village, on the rest of Ia? Well, the impact is several. First of all, one of the key elements of this kind of tourism is the money all stays in the village. So it's not some international uh, hotel chain or something, or even a domestic hotel chain that's based in Tokyo. Uh, the money stays. And the second thing is that because it's not short-term, we can talk about this a bit later, but one of the key elements uh, is that people come and stay. They don't just come and take their Instagram and leave. So what happens, they spend the night. So they're, spent, they're paying for the house for the night. They're eating in the local restaurant. They use the local taxi service. They might rent the local bikes, you know, use the local guides. Uh, so the, the amount of money that each tourist leaves is drastically different from the high-volume uh, bus tur- tourism. And we actually did a calculation once, and we figured out that uh, one person that stays in one of our IA houses, the economic benefit is 25 times that of somebody that comes in the big bus to Shirakawa. Yeah, so that's one thing. And then there's another aspect, which is that uh, these uh, properties need to be managed, and we have... Uh, a company that manages them, which means we hire employees and they all almost all come in from outside. They're young people that come from Tokyo, Osaka, and so on. And young people weren't moving into Ia. So one of the key issues for these towns that are being depopulated is how do you get not only short time stays, tourists, but how do you get young people to move in and have an income, have a reason to stay? And so that's uh, another uh, critical function. You mentioned there the idea of the longer-term guest, the person yes. who doesn't flit in for the hour or the day on their tour bus and take an Instagram photo and leave. So is encouraging more longer-term stays in a greater variety of places across the country one of the long-term strategies that you think Japan should be employing to make its tourism more sustainable beyond the pandemic? Absolutely. You want to focus on long-term And a key thing that's much discussed in tourist forums and so on is it's a very simple concept of quality over quantity. And that doesn't only mean long-term, it means the quality of the experience. And so, for example, uh, Japanese museums were notorious for being nightmare scenes at the time of a popular show. And you'd line up for hours and hours and have people with bullhorns shouting at you. And then you get inside and it's 10, 15 people between you and the artwork mayhem. Well, that's mismanagement. Hmm. That's a failure to learn the technologies of museum management. That's not the way to appreciate art. It's not the way a museum should be done. In Europe, in many places like the Borghese Gallery in Rome or something, you have to apply in advance. You're given a time. And so you, when you arrive, you see the art in peace. Well, Japan resisted because there's a, a kind of a, it's almost like a philosophy based, I think, on, old, on kind of an old style idea of democracy, that somehow everything should be available to everybody all the time, uh, which is out of date in these high volume tourist days. It just doesn't work once you've passed a certain level of capacity. But along came COVID and they needed for social distancing reasons, to, to inst- put in a uh, reservation system. And so first Tokyo National Museum did it. Some months later, Kyoto National Museum followed. 
And so they're lear- they've learned how to do it, and they are doing it. And what are the benefits of a system like that? What happens as a result of that is some people will be able to go and some people will not. And that seems a sad and unfair, but it's got two great advantages. One, the people that do go will have a higher quality experience. But it also, there's a hidden uh, kind of gem in there if you're a, a museum or, or a temple or whatever. It means that it weeds out the Chutohampa people the neither here nor there people, the people that go just because they saw it on a Facebook or because they got a free ride from their tour agency, raising that hurdle slightly higher so that you've got to go to the trouble to make that reservation means the people that really want to see it will see it and the others will not. And that's the people that you want. So you're actually getting gaining a higher quality of tourist. I guess the question is then, how far you can apply this model across the rest of Japan. They, they will pretty much have to apply it uh, in many, many places, because once you've gone over the certain capacity, it just becomes uh, a low-quality, horrible experience. So this is something that willy-nilly is coming. And remember that, you know, this has been an issue, for example, American national parks. Well, you know, it's supposed to be open to everybody, they had now have reservation systems because they just couldn't. Uh, the damage was too great once you passed that line. Uh, also, by the way, one of the misapprehensions is that somehow Japan had too many foreign tourists. And I don't agree with that. I think you can double, you can triple the number. Uh, the problem, again, was management. So if you have thousands of people, literally thousands, trooping every minute through the garden of Tenryuji then uh, Tenryuji is no longer a meditative place with artistic or religious overtones. It's just a tourist factory, right? So it's been damaged, it's been degraded. But does that mean that uh, uh, Kyoto should have less? No, it just means that Tenryuji needs to manage it better. And what happens when people can't go to the place they wanted to reserve for is they go to another place, and it might be a little farther out or they might start to explore, they might go to the temple that people hadn't gone to yet. It also spreads the burden a little bit. You've had your fair share of success in Ia and in Kyoto, as well as various other places, but how do you go about promoting alternative models of tourism, such as the managed tourism you're talking about, so that it brings others on board well, you can only do it by example. So in Kyoto, uh, we did the Machio and everybody said, no, this will never work because the Japanese only want to stay in a ryokan or a big hotel. And then guess what? They came. And so you, in a way, you succeed by success. And the fact that we make it work economically, we can pay our employees, <laughs> you know, the money comes in. And, not, and there's, a, by the way, another aspect of this kind of tourism, which is critical, I call it the community of, of a place. Uh, the people that have come to stayed in those machia love Kyoto in a way that others may not. And certainly the people that come to Ia uh, always carry Ia in their hearts. And so you've built up this particular community. And if you do that, if you, if you succeed in those things, then other regions will want to copy it. And we've been copied, I'm happy to say, in... Uh, Dozens and dozens. There, there are a lot of people doing this now all over Japan. But it's they were, for example, what often happens when I do a project somewhere, 
the, the governor or the mayor might want to do it, but the the other the other kind of officials may feel nervous. You know, this isn't the kind of thing they're used to. So what do we do? We bring them to Iojika. That's an island where I did eight houses off the coast of Nagasaki. We bring them to Ia. We bring them to the places where we've already done it. And then they can see with their own eyes. So you, I think you, you do it and you show it. And of course, I do an awful lot of writing and talking about it too. And one of the ideas I've heard you talk about recently is, is the concept of the appeal of nothing special. I found that idea really interesting. Uh, so what is that idea to you and how is it relevant to the concept of sustainable tourism? Yes, that's something that I, a phrase I've used, and it's the magic of the countryside. You know, uh, there are certain sort of philosophies of Japanese tourism. One I mentioned earlier, that everything should be available to everybody all the time, which is out of date. Another thing that's out of date is the only thing that tourists want to see is world heritage, national treasure, uh, gigantic tourist hall, you know, some kind of big splashy thing. And that is so not true. And uh, for a very long time now, people in Europe been go- have been going to you know, tiny villages in Tuscany or something. But it turns out the Japanese as well, they will go all the way to Ojika or they'll go to Ia. And why would they, because it's cheaper to fly to Hawaii. Uh, why would you do it? Well, it's that appeal of just fresh air, beautiful sea, the wind blowing through the pines, rice paddies, red earth, crickets chirping, those, that's what I call nothing special. And that was lost in Japanese tourism. But it's precious and, uh, and people desire it. I've been lucky enough with my job to travel around a lot of Japan. And one of the things I've noticed when visiting small villages is that the way they promote themselves is actually very similar to the picture you just painted. They may have a couple of historical buildings on an old section of the Edo Road and then some rice paddies and mountains and the sea. But so many of them promote themselves like this that they actually come across as not being particularly special, not really having an overwhelming appeals. So what do you think these villages are doing wrong? Well, the funny thing about that term, nothing special, is it's actually rather difficult to pull it off because in Japan, because there has been no prote- very little to no protection uh, for rural areas or for cultural properties, Mostly, Japan is a shambles. Heritage or scenic protection is at a really low level. So the problem with many of those villages is that they didn't carry it far enough. You know, you have a, you have a damaged and degraded rural landscape, and in the middle of it, you have one nice house. Well, that's, that's not what I would call nothing special, or that went too far down the line of nothing special. Uh, but the places that have really have try to preserve something of, of the whole environment and also some of their cultural traditions, whether it be a taiko group or a kagura performance or something like that, then the place becomes increasingly interesting. Then you get a depth to the experience. So on the one side here, we have this discussion about how to make undervisited places in Japan more attractive to new visitors. But on the other side, we've also touched on a conversation about reducing the burden on those places that are already well visited, already over visited. And I want to go back to something you said earlier about promoting high quality 
tourism over high quantity tourism because to me implicit in the suggestion that you're choosing high quality is the idea of high wealth and that by promoting high quality you're effectively making tourism the preserve of the wealthy and in effect de-democratizing it. I deeply disagree with that and it's one of the big mistakes you know governments everywhere in the world are fascinated by the rich people that fly in in their jets and the Japanese agencies that deal with tourism are just, they love to dream of the day that it will only be this super high rich and they'll stay in the five-star hotels with butlers and everything, won't that be great? There's, there's a place for that, fine, they're welcome, uh, but that is not the, the direction. And when I talk about quality, I'm not talking about money. Uh, that's not the word that, that applies. For example, look at IA. It, it costs, those houses cost a little more than a guest house, maybe. Uh, but we're talking, what, Ichiman Gosenyen a night? That's $130 a night. I mean, you can spend that on lunch in Tokyo. This is a reasonable level for people who love these things. I have argued that entry fees should be raised in many places, but uh, reservation systems is really the way. Because then what happens is it's nothing to do with money, it's to do with interest. The people that really want to go will go to that trouble. Something like climbing climbing Mount Fuji, they now have an optional thousand yen charge, which it turns out 50% of the people don't actually pay. It's not enough to actually support the cleanup efforts and so on, and it doesn't stop the crowds. Some Japanese academics, and me as well, uh, feel that that should be raised to 10,000 yen. Why? Because Mount, the, the value of Mount climbing Mount Fuji is worth 10000 And it's something that you should think of having spent that much. You would go to it with a sense that this is something of value. I understand what you're saying and the arguments for it, but how optimistic or not are you at this point that the current crisis will be a time of useful reflection and reimagining or... Rather than that, do you think that the post-COVID rush to return to pre-COVID tourism numbers will encourage more of the same practices we've seen in the past? I am somewhat pessimistic. I fear that right now all I hear is desperation. Uh, and, and here's the thing I'm worried about. As of the end of 2019, when, when the huge press of tourists was upon us, there were an awful lot of people in Japan that were thinking about these things. That was happening, and then along came COVID, and boom, over-tourism is gone. What we're suffering from now is a lack of tourists. Forget about all those problems of capacity and everything else. Let's just get them back somehow by hook or by crook. That's the desperate call of, of local areas today. And so I fear that, uh, for example, those museums, once COVID relaxes, they, they'll probably drop those reservation systems, go right back to the chaos they had before. What, what I would argue is that COVID is a wonderful breathing space because there's a bit of time off and uh, local governments and temples and hotels and everybody have time to think about this stuff. Let's now install some of these management techniques. So then when the flood comes back, and it will, uh, two or three years from now, the, Japan will see tourists such as it's never seen before, I think. Let's be ready for that. Let's wrap up on a different topic entirely, 
because you have a new book out which comes out Thursday, November 26th on Kindle and in hardback. It's called Finding the Heart Sutra, guided by a magician, an art collector and Buddhist sages from Tibet to Japan. I actually had the fortune on this call to watch you receive your first ever hard copy of the final book. So could you introduce it for me? Isn't, isn't it funny? Just as we began this interview, the doorbell rang and the book arrived and I'm holding it in my hands. This is a project of 40 some years since I became fascinated with the Heart Sutra. And uh, it's, it's a fun project. It's a fun book. And I think people will find that when they read it. I've tried to give an insight into a thousand years of commentary and thought on this thing uh, while keeping it fun. And what exactly is the Heart Sutra? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the Heart Sutra is uh, one of the shortest of all Buddhist writings, and it's thought to compress all the teachings of Buddhism into just a, it's 250 characters. And you can recite the whole thing in a minute. It's super dense and compressed. And that's one reason it's so popular, uh, because uh, you can get a, a kind of a, at least you have the feeling that you've got a grip on this thing. But because it's so condensed, each phrase, each kanji is like a portal. You open it up and there's worlds inside. And, uh, and that's what I'm showing. And what's the subject of the sutra? What's it? talking about what are the philosophies within well that's what's really weird is that the heart sutra subject is emptiness it's what it's about the emptiness of life and we've sure had a lot of that this year and so it's about emptiness but it's also about then what is a value what really is worth doing all of that is implied in the heart sutra so those are the the questions and it's funny that it just so happened that it came out at this moment. Well, Alex, I'm looking forward to reading it when I can get my hands on a copy. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. That was Alex Kerr. My thanks to him for joining us and his new book will be published on Thursday, November 26th. Tomorrow, if you're listening to the episode the day it comes out or potentially a long time ago, if you're listening to this in the future, how is it over there? That's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. If you like this podcast as much as Japan likes covering its countryside in concrete, then give us a rating or review on whichever podcasting platform you use. Thank you as always for listening. And until next time, Potsukarasama. Venture. Oh, excuse me. Somebody's knocked on the door. Yeah. Um, sorry, can we pause for about three minutes? Because you know, this is a life-changing moment for me. The, the Heart Sutra, which I have not yet held in my hands, has arrived. So I've got to open it. I've got to open it.